I will read here a little blurb about uh, Robert from the back of the book. Um, this is the Hidden Valley Road author discussion. Um, so Robert Colker is the author of Lost Girls, a New York Times bestseller. It was named one of New York Times 100 Notable Books and one of the Publisher Weekly's Top 10 Books of 2013. Colker is an award-winning journalist who has worked at New York Magazine and Bloomberg Businessweek. Uh, and might I add that uh, in addition to being an Oprah Book Club title, it is also the One Book, One Lincoln uh, winning title this year. Um, so I will hand it over uh, to Robert to talk a little bit about uh, the book, how he got it started, um, a little bit about um, the creation of this work, and then we can open the floor for questions. Um, I do want to point out there's a few folks here from the selection committee. We have Patty Beitler, uh, David Williams. If there's anybody else I missed, um, you can throw yourself out there. Um, but there's uh, a few people here that really uh, helped push for this book that I wanted to make sure got recognition. So. Thank you, Caitlin. And thank you everyone for, uh, for joining in tonight. I, I really um, don't want to say a word here without first uh, giving a really heartfelt thank you to the city of Lincoln and to Lincoln City Libraries for selecting Hidden Valley Road for one book, one Lincoln this year. I remember first hearing that this was a possibility from Caitlin uh, back in June, and then uh, to hear that it actually happened late in the, later in the summer, and then to be you know so excited to see uh, you know the entire library system um, lifting up this book was just really more than uh, more than I could have imagined, and I'm just very very grateful for that. And I wanted to thank you know Caitlin for putting together this Zoom tonight, and others at the library who have been involved. Uh, at every step, um, uh, Jen Jackson and Barbara Hansen. And then I, I've learned the names of a few selection committee members, Patty and also David. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm really thrilled to be talking about Hidden Valley Road with all of you. And, you know, it's been, it, it's been now 18 months since the book was published. And from, from the Oprah's book club selection forward, I really have been blown away by the book's reception and especially moved by email from families who've been touched by schizophrenia. Um, I have to admit that before the book came out, I spent so much energy wrestling control of the details and making sure that all the information in the book was clear and understandable and accurate, that I didn't have time to dwell on how many people out there might actually personally identify with what this family went through. And so that's been a wonderful and very moving surprise. And I'm, I'm very glad to have written something that people have responded to in that way. I do think that in our lifetime, many psychiatric conditions have been greatly destigmatized. I'm talking about um, things like bipolar disorder or anxiety or depression. You know, a generation or two ago, we really didn't talk about these things, but now we talk about them without the judgment and secrecy and shame that we used to have. And I, I do firmly believe that schizophrenia is long overdue for the same sort of shift. And I would really like this book to be a part of that effort. So um, that alone has been very heartening to hear people talk about uh, severe mental illness and to talk about this book as a way of talking about it. And even beyond mental illness, I've come to think that uh, the story of this family is meaningful, especially in difficult situations. I, I think what the Galvin family went through uh, a generation ago has a lot to teach us about dealing with tragedy. It's really about people who find themselves traumatized and find ways to work through it. It's about finding the humanity in moments like that and refusing to shut down and refusing to turn inward. And despite everything the people in this family went through, I really do think their story is about hope. And I, I'm smiling as I say that because I I remember explaining what this book was about to people as I was writing it and uh, their faces would fall. And I would say, no, really, this story is about hope, but uh, you know, trust me, you know, so hopefully some of you who've read it might agree that aspects of the book are that way. Um, I'm gonna be just taking another 10 minutes or so to, to talk a little bit about uh, the book in some respects, but uh, I've been planning ahead with Caitlin and I know there's lots to discuss, many questions already submitted. And then, of course, I'd like to open the floor to everybody who's on the Zoom tonight. So I won't take up too much time, but uh, I'll just uh, I'll just speak a little bit more now. Um, a little bit about me. I'm not a doctor and I'm, I'm not a, a patient. I'm a, I'm a writer. I'm a journalist. 
And I had written in my career a few stories about mental health and medicine and science. But when I first met the Galvin family in 2017, my most relevant qualification was a career writing about vulnerable people, people, sometimes entire families who were experiencing a crisis of some sort. Uh, I, I was a magazine writer and I had written one book. Um, and as a journalist, I really um, discovered my profession in my 20s when I was a local reporter for a little weekly newspaper on the west side of Manhattan. Uh, I only say this because most people I know in my generation who got into journalism did it because of Woodward and Bernstein, or they wanted to be a foreign correspondent. But I really connected with reporting on everyday people who weren't necessarily expecting to get covered. And I liked reporting on them week after week for this little weekly paper, almost like a, a narrative, like a serial, so to see what would happen next week, whether they were fighting a new plan for a skyscraper on their block or dealing with a crime problem. It had a narrative aspect to it. And I became comfortable walking in the shoes of certain people uh, and, and became fascinated by nonfiction storytelling. And because this is a library talk, I, I can say, you know, in my career, I, I started to really read as much long form journalism and, and narrative nonfiction or as, as I really could. And I, I developed heroes who, who sort of lifted the veil on parts of the world that I never would have understood if I hadn't read their books. Um, some of my favorites are Adrienne Nicole LeBlanc, who wrote a book called Random Family. She spent many, many years getting to know um, uh, women up in the Bronx who were single mothers and on public assistance. And the book she wrote reads like it could be something out of Charles Dickens or, or a soap opera that you just want to, you keep turning the pages wanting to know what happens to these people. And along the way, you learn about their world in a way that you might otherwise not know. And um, Another great one is Alex Kotlowitz, who wrote There Are No Children Here, which was about two boys growing up in the projects in Chicago. Again, uh, the, one of the best ways to learn about what life is like there is to, to watch a reporter do immersion uh, and, and get to know people in an intimate way. And then the other author I'd mentioned tonight is Catherine Boo, who wrote Behind the Beautiful Forevers, which was about uh, life in Mumbai for a struggling family in India. And I, I never would have picked up a nonfiction book explaining what life is like in Mumbai, but this store book is a story that where you follow people through trials and tribulations. They're, the people who write books like this are narrative geniuses, and I really wanted to try to do that too. And I sort of waited for years for chances to do it. Um, my first book, Lost Girls, was about five families all going through the same crisis. They're, they each had a daughter who was a victim in the same unsolved murder case in Long Island, a serial killer case that still is not solved even now, 10 years after I first reported on it. Um, but the book was about the families and how they weathered this tragedy. And then with Hidden Valley Road, I happened upon a way to explore that same subject more deeply than I'd ever dreamed I'd be able to. And, and that story for me really begins in the spring of 2016 when a friend of mine introduced me to the two sisters in the family, Margaret and Lindsay. They were both in their 50s when I met them and they're, they're the youngest of the 12 and they're the only girls in the family. And they had 10 older brothers and they told me over the phone that six of their brothers had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. And then they kept talking. They talked about um, traumatic childhoods where they both had been abused by older brothers. And they talked about one brother having a murder-suicide and killing his girlfriend and then himself. And they talked about years of denial and struggle of suffering and silence. And the more I learned about the family, the more I couldn't believe this story. It was really horrifying. And um, I couldn't imagine it happening at all. And I couldn't imagine it happening to just one family. And I wondered really how such a family could even pretend to stay together under such horrible circumstances. I wondered why these sisters wouldn't have run away the first chance they got never to come back. But when I talked to them, they really were hopeful. Uh, they, it had been decades since the worst had happened and they had found ways to uh, reconnect with their family on their own terms. They told me how they, each of them had found a way through their childhoods and they told me, and this is important, that their family has a scientific legacy, that their family was so significant that they were studied by the National Institute of Mental Health and by uh, other scientists to search for the genetic origins of schizophrenia. And uh, after that first conversation, when I got on the phone with some of the researchers who analyzed the family's genetic material, I learned 
that samples of their DNA actually really did help form the cornerstone of genetic research into schizophrenia that continues today. That's something that even the family hadn't known when we first were in touch. The two sisters wanted their family's story told by an impartial journalist, someone like me, and I was not sure if I'd be able to do it, and I also wasn't sure if the rest of the family would let me. Um, we all know about medical privacy laws, the HIPAA laws, and I thought that perhaps there'd be someone in the family who really wouldn't want uh, their story to be told to the general public. Remember, the family had not been written about before. Uh, no one really knew they existed outside of them, their family, and the family itself didn't even know uh, how much their uh, genetic material had contributed to the science. And, and so I took my time. I decided on a plan that I would interview one family member per week for the next several weeks and maybe interview some researchers too and just field them out generally to see if they were all right with this idea of a book that their sisters had. And lo and behold, they were all interested. I think that they were deferring to the sisters in a sense because the sisters really did suffer a lot growing up. But also I think there was a feeling that, that it was now or never because Mimi Galvin, the mother of the family was 90 years old and very frail. And it seemed like if they were gonna do it, now would be the time. And they were ready. And I talked with every single surviving Galvin family member. And that's when I started to get very excited about this book because you know, at the time I thought to myself that I could think of many wonderful and very moving and educational personal memoirs about mental illness. And I can think about many eye-opening books about science, about the science of mental illness, but to my knowledge, Hidden Valley Road is unique in that no nonfiction author ever tried to write a, a full-scale narrative representing every single family member's point of view, sort of a 360-degree view of the family. It was really the challenge of a career to tell the story of a family so large and to do it in a way so that readers wouldn't get lost or, or wouldn't throw the book across the room thinking, too many characters, how do I know who to follow? Um, I modeled it after intergenerational family sagas that I loved that were fiction, like East of Eden, where part one of the book is about one generation and part two is the second generation. And everything that happens in part two has more meaning because you know the parents and you know everything that they've been through. Um, no single family member of the Galvins had the whole story. And so I, in interviewing them all, I kind of pieced it together like a quilt to try to tell their story. Um, in that part one, Don and Mimi Galvin married during World War II and moved to Colorado and raised their family. They have children that span the baby boom, 1945 to 1965. Uh, the century is, it's, it's a time of optimism. It's the American century. Uh, there are some warning signs that things are amiss, but the parents really aren't prepared for what happens next. And, and the first breakdowns happen in the late 60s. Um, and their decisions at that time and the options that they have are all scrutinized heavily by the children later on as they grow up. And along the way, I weave in sort of a shadow history of the evolving science of mental illness throughout the 20th century. And that's not a pretty story either. It's about barbaric treatments like lobotomies and researchers not listening to one another and about bad theories like the schizophrenogenic mother blaming mothers for mental illness, bad theories like that sort of carrying a lot of weight and, and persuading an entire profession to blame mothers for schizophrenia. I kind of cover a lot of ground in the book, but I tried my best to make sure that the science is always in the service of the family's story. I didn't want readers to feel like I was making them you know, eat their vegetables or, or do their homework. I wanted the, the science part to sort of be as just enough information that you would need at the time to, care, to help raise the stakes for what the family was going through. And uh, above all, I wanted it to be about the people and not just the well siblings, but the sick siblings as well. I, I visited with them all. I, I got to know them all. And I got to see how they have, they, they, they of course are, are um, compromised now. Their health is failing, the three surviving mentally ill brothers, but they have personalities. They are their own people. Uh, Donald has an air of peace about him and Matt is grouchy. Uh, but also lovable. And Peter is sort of a natural performer and very rambunctious. And spending time with me uh, helped me understand that, that mental illness is not a cookie cutter condition and that even people in the same family with supposedly the same illness manifest the illness differently from one another. I think our popular culture has a way of kind of othering the mentally ill 
Um, sometimes it turns them into monsters and sometimes it turns them into precious souls who have special insight that the rest of us lack access to. And uh, perhaps there are people on the Zoom who have severe mental illness in their families. I I'm not sure anyone here can, can think that, that the people they know really check off either of those boxes. I don't think that I don't think that people with severe mental illness are monsters or secretly mystical. I think that they're people. And I wanted to write about the book, them as if they were people. That was a big goal of the book. I think the Galvin family really said yes for another reason. They, they see how their story might bring comfort to many families experiencing something similar. People who might be tempted not to seek help. People who might be hiding in the shadows and not finding a community of people to support them. They really felt like they had something to teach the world. And I, I really came to believe that too. And um, I think that it, it has a lot to teach us. As I said before, there are stories about people who find themselves traumatized and find ways to work through it, about finding the humanity in moments that threaten to strip that humanity away. It's about refusing to shut down and re refusing to turn inward and about finding a new way to understand what it means to be a family. Uh, that's what I had prepared for for uh, this program, but I I know that there are some uh, great programs that can great questions that can take the program into a different direction. So I'm excited to get talking with all of you. Sure. Um, so to kind of get the break break the ice a little bit, um, I'll ask you one of my favorite questions to ask the, the various book groups, and I'll show the the cover for the people that might not have it uh, at hand. Um, but I always like to ask what the title and the cover help tell us about the story. So I'm curious what, what your thoughts are. Um, I felt very fortunate to that the sisters shared that photograph of the family on the staircase of the Air Force Academy, um, that they showed that to me pretty early in the process because I felt like it, it did a tremendous amount of work in explaining the family's story. It made it clear that the family was, um, you know, a solid middle-class family with aspirations that, that they were interested in how things looked and in appearances. And um, it, it was helpful in that way because it would sort of send the signal to the reader about what sort of family we'd be reading about, not necessarily um, uh, the most powerful influential family in the world, but not the least either, someone right in the, someplace right in the middle. And of course, all those little suits that the boys were wearing and, and the, a, a title like Hidden Valley Road, it, you know that, that there's going to be some difficulties that this family faces just by looking at the photograph and the title. Um, I felt like the, the other part of the title didn't have to hit uh, that tragic note quite so hard because the image did the same thing. So it, all I said was inside the mind of an American family, as opposed to you know, the tragedy of an American family or something like that. Um, but the title itself is, was sort of a great minds think alike uh, situation. Um, I, I saw that the family grew up on Hidden Valley Road and thought, what a great title for a book. And then later on, I learned that one of the sisters, Margaret Galvin, had been thinking that would be a good title for decades, actually, when she was daydreaming about what a book about the family would be like. So, um, so it, I guess it was not such a, uh, a stroke of genius to come up with that title. Uh, one of our staff members, actually, her husband was an Air Force, uh, uh, I, I can't remember exactly his title, but he was in the Air Force and he was stationed out there. And she said that it was called the Ostrich Club. And then it was quite like, it's it's an officer's club, like you kind of have to earn earn your way in. Um, so we, we kind of thought the same sort of um, presentation, right, of this very put together family and um, the appearance that kind of hides what's what's truly underneath. So very um, powerful cover, I think, in terms of the many covers that I see throughout throughout the day. Um, another question that came up a lot in our book uh, discussions was wondering if this story would be any different if it was told today, as opposed to starting in the 50s, 60s. I love that question. It's something that I get asked to address a lot when I'm often when I'm speaking to um, groups of mental health professionals 
caregivers and also psychiatrists, you know, um, to talk about schizophrenia in general, just to what is the difference between then and now? And I think there, it's interesting about what hasn't changed as well as what has changed. Um, what hasn't changed is that the medicine, uh, the prescriptions that, that we give people with schizophrenia are not drastically different from what the Galvins got in 1970 or 1969. And that is surprising to me because uh, in my lifetime, when I, I grew up thinking about mental illness as a brain chemistry issue, and I, I thought about all of the revolutionary drugs like Prozac and, and, and the like that had come online to, to help resolve the mental health conditions that people had. But it turns out schizophrenia hasn't had a game-changing drug in decades. Um, there's more subtlety with the prescriptions, and there's certainly more names of different drugs, but there are two classifications of drugs that have always been there, and there, there's no big third one yet to shake things up. So that's been that's a bummer, obviously. But um, on the bright side, the, the stigma really is diminishing. Mothers aren't blamed for mental illness anymore. That theory is finally gone. And um, early intervention now has become one of the, the big uh, persuading persuasive concepts of, of severe mental health treatment. So you take someone like Donald Galvin, the oldest brother who first started presenting mental health problems when he was probably 15 or 16. He didn't go to the state mental hospital until he was 25 or 26. He had close to 10 years of not really being treated, certainly not being medicated for mental illness. And in that time, his brain was still developing as an adolescent. What if that same person in 2021 at the age of 15 had the same problems? Well, it, assuming they had good health care, uh, the, the, the protocol would be to intervene early, to try to use a mixture of medication and therapy to, to stave off the worst of it, to help the brain continue to develop, to make sure that he has as functional a life as possible. And most of all, to provide community support with the family. Those of you who've read Hidden Valley Road know that the family kind of lived underground with this illness for many years until they couldn't anymore. Uh, that, that, was their, that was the option they chose because the other option would be to destroy the family. Um, families are, have more options today. There are communities of support out there and it's important that they find them. Awesome. Um... That, that was um, certainly something uh, expressed by a lot of people, how kind of how far have we actually come? So it, it is kind of reassuring to know that um, at, le at least if nothing else, our attitude towards it has changed. So we're a little bit more accepting and more um, forgiving and that sort of thing. And then with, you know, that empathy that comes with it, science is like, oh, maybe this is a problem that we should be willing to fix in, in different ways. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, another one that we kind of hit on a lot was um, the how, how much the uh, I can't remember if he was a priest or what exactly his title was, but Freudenstein, how mm -hmm. much he kind of um, influenced the boys in terms of um, causing whatever symptoms. Um, I know there's kind of a nature versus nurture uh, debate involved Um in the book. So I was curious where you fall, if you think it's a little bit of both or one more than the other um, with particular um, respect to Freudenstein's um, actions. Sure. Um, a quick word on the nature versus nurture question. I, I think one thing we know now that we might not have known back in the Galvin's day is that it's pretty impossible to give to, to, to cause schizophrenia in somebody who isn't already genetically predisposed or vulnerable to developing a severe mental illness. So um, you could traumatize or, or, uh, or cause some sort of environmental or nurture, uh, give, a, give a nurture related problem to somebody who is not genetically vulnerable to developing schizophrenia and they won't develop schizophrenia. But if you have the genetic vulnerability, and it seems clear that the Galvin family most certainly did, and you experience some sort of triggering event, then, then you might be a sitting duck. And so if it is true that Father Freudenstein um, uh, sexually abused Donald Galvin, then, then you could come up with a sort of overarching theory to say that that set him off, that perhaps Freudenstein abused other brothers that maybe there was a chain of abuse going down because we know that Jim, one of the brothers, 
sexually abused the sisters and and that it all um the way that we understand uh abuse now as being a chain where where the the abused grow up and become abusers that it could be a great that and and schizophrenia could be the great double curse of the family um it's impossible to confirm that uh we we only have Donald's word to go on what happened with, with Freudenstein and he was severely mentally ill when he talked about it, but it made a lot of sense to Mimi. It was a very helpful concept to her to think that she had been taken in by this um, priest who really had meant to harm her children and that, that she would have was, was a sort of naive and didn't see him, didn't see him uh, in plain sight and that he might have been the spark that caused all of the problems. That was something that she kind of clung to for a little while there. But I don't want to discount it altogether because certainly there are triggers for people who are vulnerable. Sexual abuse could be one of them or, or, or physical abuse, emotional abuse. Certainly they talk about drug use, you know, that, that people who are vulnerable to mental illness whose brains are still developing should probably avoid marijuana because it could be a trigger. Um, there hasn't been enough work done yet to know what definitively triggers this in vulnerable people. So with that absent any knowledge of that, then you probably could choose, look back and find anything being a trigger. Um, sometimes the psychotic breaks that these brothers had happened after they experienced major heartbreak. You know, Brian broke up with his girlfriend, Joseph broke up with his fiance, Donald was breaking up with his wife. Sometimes it, it happened for Peter, it happened just um, a couple of weeks after he watched his father have a stroke right in front of him. So it's possible that it doesn't exactly matter what the trauma it is you experience, but that you are not prepared for that trauma when it comes and you, your brain um, veers off course in its development. Okay, I'll, I'll take that answer. I, uh... I think it's a nice mixture of some of the different um, elements that our book dis book group discussion came up with as well. Um, so I have a question from Barb. She says, "I love the way each chapter started with a list of names with the name of the highlighted per the highlighted person in bold. With so many stories happening within the book, it was very helpful keeping everyone and their birth order clear." Do you recall how you came up with that idea? I referred to that list and the photo so many times as I read. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that it was helpful. I came up with it in the middle of writing the first draft of the book. My previous book had a lot of people in it too, and they were hard to keep track of as well. And um, I probably, in hindsight, wish I had done a better job of, of charting it out for people. Even the cast of people, even the, the index of people's names in that first book, Lost Girls, is at the end of the book, not at the beginning of the book. And I can remember my mother actually saying, I could have used that at the beginning of the book. So uh, I had that uh, in, in mind when I was writing it. But also my first book, Lost Girls, had little maps at the beginning of the chapters to sort of chart where different people were and where they were going. And so I thought, what if I could do something like that with this book where the beginning of each chapter would let people know what was happening or, or who to focus on? And then suddenly it dawned on me that it, it could be like it could be like following a baseball game and looking at the program and seeing who was up at bat with each chapter that that. The, the bold face names were the ones we were going to focus on and keeping that cast of characters at the beginning of every, every chap chapter could be a nice calming influence for an anxious reader who's worried that they're never going to get the family straight. So I was, I was just, I was overjoyed. I was sort of running around the house when I came up with that and showed it to my daughter at one point. She said, Oh yeah, that's good. And walked away. But I was happy anyway. Yeah. That is one of the things that we uh, think about when we're, selecting a book first how how broad a cast of characters is but also <laughs> is there some sort of mechanism for us to help keep track of them so mm -hmm. that definitely um helped us um i have another question here it's really more of a, a comment from christy but i wonder if you have thoughts on it um i was fascinated by how the family's hobby of falconry was woven throughout the narrative it wouldn't be difficult to make an analogy between the falcons who flew away and always returned and the afflicted sons who would leave and return either to their family home or to a treatment facility. Um, that's a marvelous insight. Um, and I think it works perfectly. Um, the analogy that I would think of was, um, was the, just the idea that 
that when the this is not a this is not a a um a family from the heartland uh, or from Colorado. They're from the East Coast and they're kind of snobby. And they show up in the 1950s in Colorado and they choose a hobby. And it's not golf, you know, it's it's something very strenuous and very weird. Falconry was not popular back then. And um, it takes a, it has a lot of rules, a lot of weird customs. You have to build stuff to make it happen. But they were really into it, I think, because it was so hard and so esoteric, it, it made them feel accomplished. And I think the to me, falconry for them was this, it was the a way for them to show that hard work pays off, that if you do everything right, the good things will happen, that you'll domesticate that hawk if you follow all the instructions perfectly. But of course, real life isn't like that when it outside of your hobbies, that that children don't always grow up the way that you plan them to, and misfortune does happen to you. So that was the the rather obvious way that I thought about it. But your way is actually wonderful too, because you have this this family that now is has lost control of of everyone in it, and they're still desperately trying to maintain control, like falconers. And these kids are cycling in and out of the mental hospital and the streets and home, and and they're trying to bring them back. Um, time and time again, I, I think it's, it's much better than my idea. Yeah, I like, I like both of them. I think they both, uh, have merits to the, to the story. Um, I have a sort of a question from Kathy. Um, she's wondering if the father's connection to the military affected the family hiding their situation or maybe affected getting treatment for the boys. Um, it was a mixed bag for them because he he, uh, he had just as the two oldest sons were getting sick, he had just left um, the Air Force after a, a pretty nice career there and got this very posh job, this very socially connected, politically connected job advising the governors of the Western states. And that was a job where a scandal really would have ruined his career. And so that was the real the real problem that mental illness posed for him it, in the beginning, having being a, a having a military pension and having military health benefits for for most of his kids, the kid ones who weren't too old, was actually very helpful for him because he it meant that they could go see doctors who he had connections to, that he could go fishing for a complimentary medical opinion to get Donald back into college. Um, he would be they could pull some strings and also it was a comfort zone for them to, to bring their kids to people who might be able to keep their secrets. But, um, but, but, but after that, it, but it just got out of control beyond that. Um, I, I know what you're asking though, because you'd think a prim and proper military family couldn't, couldn't handle any problems. But the interesting thing that I learned about Colorado Springs and the Air Force Academy is that as far as military academy towns go, it was a pretty hip place compared to say where West Point or Annapolis. It was all brand new. It had just opened in the late fifties. Uh, most of the faculty were young. They were like World War II veterans who had come home and, um, and were war hero scholars. It was like the Kennedy generation. And, um, and so the, the town was kind of groovy. Like they had rock bands playing and stuff like that. So, so um, it wasn't, quite leave it to beaver. Um, and so the, that, that part of it wasn't the issue, I don't think. Um, I have another one that speaks a little bit to some of your research, uh, asking how easy or difficult was it for you to access and read uh, the medical records? Uh, was it mostly uh, people sharing those with you or uh, you accessing them through research? That was one of the big unknowns. I mentioned in my uh, earlier tonight that um, how long it took and to make sure that all everyone in the family would speak to me. But, but in all that time, it wasn't necessarily clear that we'd be able to find a lot of medical records. Remember that, that some of these brothers were close to 20 years older than the youngest members of the family. And, and so who knew of the hospital still, some, didn't, some hospitals didn't exist anymore and others may not have kept their records. And certainly, when when I learned things about how the family would call the police when there was trouble at the house, none of those police records exist anymore. So I had to kind of plan for the possibility that there really wouldn't be much. But then, thanks largely to Lindsay 
and her efforts and, and Dr. Robert Friedman, who's linked up with the state hospital system, uh, they, they finally were able to help uh, to, to get access to the medical records at the state hospital in Pueblo. And that was a treasure trove, particularly when it came to Donald and Peter, but for a lot of the other brothers too. There were these two huge shopping carts overflowing with accordion folders. And I was you know, sitting there looking at medical records, but that was pretty late in the game. It was, it was um, more than six months after I had started working full-time on the book that that, that came through. And that it actually made the book so much better, not just because of the information, but because it brought to life Donald in a way that no one else could have. Donald's in his 70s now and doesn't have much of a memory. And um, the people around him at that time are all gone and are not or don't have a memory of it either. Uh, and so to, to have the medical records there telling the story of how he had his troubled teenage years um, was really amazing. It meant that he could become as in, as fully fleshed out a person on the page as as his brothers and sisters. Yeah, that was uh, another kind of form of uh, question that our book discussion had a, a lot, um, that some family members are featured much more fully uh, mm -hmm. in the book as, as a function, possibly by the nature of, of your topic, how much they wanted to, to share and that sort of thing, and how much could be shared about, like how much information there was to share about them. Um, yeah, it was a mix of, of what was available and also of expediency because um, I sort of made the decision early on that I couldn't give everybody equal time, that there would have to be some people who the reader could would know they would always be coming back to, the people who would be our mainstays, who even if there were a chapter about Michael going to a commune, you would kind of know in the back of your mind that in the, maybe in the next chapter, you were going to get back to those people who I had foregrounded, which of course is the two sisters, Lindsay and Margaret, and probably Mimi, the mother. And I would think hopefully Donald is in there too. But, but the, then there are others who just sort of get jobbed in from time to time to offer fresh perspectives on what's going on. And that was partly on purpose, but then also it was based on av available information. Um, I'll bring up, for instance, Jim Galvin, the, the abusive brother, who is such a terrible um, presence in the family. Very, very little medical information about Jim. He didn't go to the state hospital in Pueblo. He went to other places. So there aren't, weren't medical records for him. And his ex-wife only had so much information. I did talk to her. But there are years of Jim's life that are not accounted for in this book. Um, and uh, I just sort of had to keep moving and hope that there would be enough to carry it through. Uh, another question kind of piggybacking on your research. Um, Barb is wondering how long it took to write the book, including all of the research. And do you ever work on more than one book at a time? Um, this, this book was, it was about a year before I, I sold the book proposal from the time I first talked to the sisters on the phone to then all those phone calls with everyone else, then some trips to Colorado and writing the book proposal and sending it out and, and taking bids. And by the time I, I sold the book after a year, I knew that the only way to do the book right would be to work on it full time. Um, at the, so I quit, I had a job at the time writing long pieces for Bloomberg Businessweek magazine, which is a very nice job and I enjoyed it very much, but I, um, I knew that the only way to do this book would be to do it full time. So I, I, you know, parted ways in a friendly way with Bloomberg and then got to work full time on this for another, uh, year and a half to finish the first draft. And then another year after that to revise it. And, um, I don't want to skip past that too quickly. It, it took me almost as long to revise the book as it did to write write it. And that I think is important. At least I feel it's important because um I don't I'm not one of these authors that that you know writes something brilliant in the first draft and then hits publish and then we're done. Like it, I work with an editor and we come up with strategies and game plans for revision and we I we kind of work it all out so that it it kind of works as well as I can. That first draft is almost like the rough cut of a movie. And then there are edits and reshoots and reorderings and major surgery done to the yeah. book before it's done. Uh, I, I think a lot of our book group participants um, appreciated that as well because they felt like it was a very 
uh, accurate depiction for them. They felt like the science part was exactly right, like the right level of uh, information. It wasn't too sciencey. It was, you know, good for layman's. And they felt like they got a pretty uh, full picture of the family. So I think your your revision did did you well on that. Yeah, I came up with a rule with me and my editor. And that was to not talk about anything scientific about schizophrenia unless it raised the stakes for the Galvin family or provided important context for what the Galvins were going through at that time. So there are whole aspects of mental illness that aren't in this book because they aren't really relevant to what the Galvins went through. But I really didn't want a book that would digress too much that would feel like a textbook. I really wanted it to be a family story first. Excellent. Yeah, we, um, we really that was uh, kind of the draw for us. It w- if it would, if it had been more academic, it probably wouldn't have stayed on the list. So the, the family dynamics and a lot of those other um, elements to it really helped keep it um, relevant for our community read. Um, I have another question here from Monica, wondering if you're still in contact with the two sisters and how the book has made a difference in their lives. Um, I'm gonna see Lindsay in person for the first time since before the pandemic and since before the book was published. Um, I'm seeing her on Friday because we've both been asked to speak at the same psychiatry conference in San Antonio. So that's going to be great. But we, we're in touch a lot. We're on the phone and on Zooms. And she has um, always wanted to not just su- be supportive of her sick brothers, but also try to link up with other families who are having difficulties and hopefully you know, help them. And so the book has kind of turbocharged that part of her life. And she has joined the boards of a few organizations and she's become very uh, excited about talking about how to help families talk to mentally ill family members who don't believe they need help. The condition has a name, um, anasognosia, and it's basically meaning that you're mentally ill, but you're not aware you're mentally ill. And so what do you do with that if you have a brother or a cousin who really needs help and really needs to see the doctor and insists that they don't need to see the doctor. Um, and she had, there, there are methods for, for developing a rapport and not alienating those people. And she wants to help people with that, which is great. Um, Margaret also has sort of turbocharged her life. She really, for her, the story of her family is very different. It's about, um, it's about overcoming trauma and it's about moving through tragedy and finding purpose in your life. And it's about um, coming up with a healthy relationship with your family. And so she has um, uh, doubled down on her artwork. She, she uh, helps and counsels people who come to her who have complicated family situations as well, too. And, um, and she, she, when she talks with me now, she, it's really about um, how the book allowed her to sort of close a certain, end a certain chapter of her life and start a new one. It's almost like a new lease on life for her. And I, I don't think it's necessarily the book alone. I think it also is, it's the hoopla over the book. Like it's Oprah Winfrey talking to her for the, for the special for the book. Like they, that's a big moment for her. And it, it helped send a signal that she, you know, that, that she can, the sky's the limit for her. So she's excited. Excellent. Um, now, Jen, uh, also, she has a question that I was going to ask. So thanks, Jen, for asking it. Um, both of your books deal with somewhat dark and heavy topics. Um, how do you cope or protect your own mental health while being so immersed in these worlds? I think I did a much better job with it with this book than with my first book. The first book because it was my first book, I was very insecure and, and had a lot of um, imposter syndrome. They call it, you know, I, I didn't, I thought that it was going to be the great unmasking moment of my career that, that people would suddenly realize, oh, he's not so good after all. And so I, I tried to, I kind of white knuckled it while, while writing it. I, I would, you know, sweat and suffer in silence. And then at the end of the day, I'd turn to my family and say, oh yeah, it was fine. Everything's going fine. Don't worry about me. But it, by the end of it, I really needed to decompress and was really it wasn't just the fear of failure. It was also the subject matter, which was very, very dark. It's an unsolved murder case and people with really unfortunate life circumstances meeting a lot of tragedy head on. And I was, you know, I watched a lot of romantic comedies for a few weeks for sure, like as after the book came out. And I, I kind of, I didn't really um, 
feel like I had it in me to attack another big book, book project for a very long time after that. That book came out in 2013. And when I first talked to the Galvins in 2016, um, there had been years of wondering what the next book would be, but not necessarily being ready to tackle it. Um, so this time around with this book, I decided I can't white knuckle it this time. I can't treat the book, you know, if I'm going to work for years on something, I can't treat it like it's a roller coaster that I'm going on that I, that I, that I'll talk to you when I get off the ride. Like I have to have a life while I do it. So I, I really tried to create some balance in my life. We, we got a dog. I had a, you know, suddenly I had a work colleague at home, my dog. And um, I took a couple cooking classes. I was, you know, made sure that I was helping, you know, that I was preparing meals a few nights a week for the family, that I wasn't just sitting there suffering, that I had other things to do. Um, I tried to make it more of a life. And I think it worked out nicely that way, for sure. Um, the, yeah, I think that's especially relevant now, uh, especially with the book being um, about mental health. But I think uh, the past year, a lot of people have learned a lot about their own mental health. Um, so I think the as much as we can do to highlight that and what you can do for self-care, I think is great. Um, um, let's see, we have another question here. Do you think uh, the science would be further along if the female researcher had been taken more seriously and had a more support in the beginning? Sorry, I don't remember the scientist's name, they say. Uh, yeah, that's Dr. Lynn DeLisi. And for those who haven't looked at the book, she is one of the researchers who becomes convinced that the way to understand the genetics of this disease is to look at families like the Galvin family that have lots of people who with that same illness in them. And in a way, it kind of makes sense to do that. It, it seems to be like the, the easiest thing you would think of. Like, if you want to go, you know, looking for uh, genetic quirks, go to the family that has the genetic quirks. But the, um, the fact is that she was doing battle with a, the, the Human Genome Project which was the exact opposite um, strategy. The strategy of the Human Genome Project was to sequence the human genome and then get as much material on the whole population as possible so that then if you're sick with something genetic, it should stand up like a sore thumb against all of that broad population information. But it didn't work for schizophrenia. They, they found a genetic variant or mutation that they thought contributed to schizophrenia, but it turns out it only contributed by 0.002% or something like that. And then um, they found another one and another one and another one. And they, they, they found more than a hundred possible genetic suspects that might contribute to schizophrenia, but their, their effect size was so tiny, each of them, that it was like finding nothing at all. And so back back to Lynn DeLisi we go, because her initial idea was really the right one. And, um, and she really still has something to offer today. And, and the tide is turning back to studying families now in this way. The, uh, the frustration with her losing funding and um, kind of getting kicked to the curb a little bit, that was another overwhelming, like, Almost every book group I've been a part of uh, expressed that that was so frustrating to watch from the outside. So I can only imagine what it was like to be her and have her um, research kind of like psh, psh, off to the side. Um, let's see. Amy Sorry. asks, what project are you currently working on? Um, I spent a lot of the year working on a, a story for the New York Times magazine that came out a couple of weeks ago that went rather nicely and I'm starting up a relationship with them. So hopefully I'll do a couple more stories for them next year. And those are fun to do because they can all be, they're almost like nice lab, it's a nice laboratory setting for me to try to try to test out ideas that then could possibly be book ideas. So it, it my, my goal next year is to work on a couple of nice magazine stories and to actively shop for the next book. And, and have that sort of be my, be my year next year. Okay, and then um, to kind of wrap it up, I've, I haven't gotten any new questions here in a little bit, so I'll kind of give people a chance to get their last question out. Um, what books, um, and you've kind of given us a couple from the beginning that I could add to this list, but what books do you think um, you would recommend to people? Uh, of course, I'm a librarian, so this is uh, always my, my struggle. So what books would you recommend to people? Um, sometimes there are books that really take me by surprise. 
they're about subjects that I never would have cared about before, but that they, but they're so much fun that you end up learning something along the way. Um, the one I always think about is Moneyball by Michael Lewis. I'm not, you know, I like baseball and I go to baseball games, but I'm not, I don't geek out about it at all. And so the information in Moneyball is, was, was entirely new to me and not necessarily the first thing I would ever want to learn about, but he makes it all so suspenseful by, by giving us a situation with the main character who you're really rooting for and, and a world where everybody thinks that this guy's foolish for trying something new and you're just rooting for him the whole way. It becomes this, this amazing um, underdog story. And, and, and so that, that's the kind of thing that I look for. It's something that, um, that comes, comes from uh, an unexpected place and, and teaches me something new and also helps involve me in terms of the storytelling. Okay, and it looks like we'll have one last question. So kind of a nice one to end on, but um, where will you look for your next book subject? You talked a little bit about the, the New York Times Magazine. And then do you have lots of pitches made to you? I am getting some calls now um, from folks uh, talking about this and that. And that's another nice reason to continue doing magazine stories because then people react to those as well. Um, I don't think that my next book would come from looking at a disease necessarily, like saying, well, next I'm going to do um, you know, bipolar disorder. I think it comes from looking for a story and I don't think I'm done writing about families. So I, I think uh, one thing I am doing is searching for another compelling family story to tell one that hopefully has a second uh, set of issues surrounding it, whether it's mental illness or something else is, remains to be seen. But, but family dynamics interest me. I, I clearly have done it. I've gravitated toward it in the last two books. And I feel like I'd like to continue doing that about estrangements and about what we owe our families once we get older and about parental attention and inattention and, and good intentions gone awry. And uh, it's just endlessly interesting to me. Awesome. Uh, Christy suggests that hemophilia would be an interesting topic for you. Sure. Um, uh, well, thank you so much for visiting with us. Um, I know so many people were excited to hear you um, just talk about how you approached the book and how you wrote it. Um, and then some of the, the particulars that we got to address. Um, Pat Leach, our director, says thank you so much. Oh. Um, so I think having you come and talk has just been a perfect way to end this One Book, One Lincoln season. So thank you so much for um, chatting with us and um, sharing your book because it clearly made quite an impact on our community. It's been such an honor. Uh, it's really, it, it was such a, again, such a great feeling to to know that the book was going to be read by a whole community this way. It just is, it's more, it's, it's what every writer dreams of. So I must thank you all for making that dream come true. I'm just so grateful.